afternoon and welcome to the 144th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss fire and the pandemic with historian Stephen Pine. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I had a great response to my request for people who may wanna participate in the week of mourning memorials and obituary reading. And we're gonna have that tomorrow at five o'clock and I'm gonna do a second session in November. So if you'd like to participate and tomorrow is not a good day for you to participate, please do be in touch with me by email at sgk23 at drexel.edu or find me on Twitter at US of Disaster and, and we'll get you involved in this project. Thank you. As of today, October 8th, 2020, there are 1,058,764 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,586,904 cases in the United States, up from 7,506,743 reported yesterday, and there are now a total of 212,466 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 211,108 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Tribe's Fire Chief Donald DiPetrio dies from COVID-19 by Kevin Johnson. This appeared May 1st in the Seminole Tribune. Donald DiPetrio, who served the Seminole Tribe of Florida as its fire chief since 2008 and had worked for fire departments in Broward County for nearly 50 years, died April 30th, 2020 at Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood. He was 70. William Latchford, executive director of public safety for the Seminole tribe, fondly remembered Chief DiPetrio for his dedication and demeanor. Don played a major role in bringing a new level of professionalism to the fire department operations of Seminole Fire Rescue, Latchford said in a statement from the tribe. Chief DiPetrio understood that success in life was about just being nice. If you care for people, the rest takes care of itself. His care, commitment, and leadership for over 50 years of service helped shape the future of the fire service, not only within the Seminole tribe, but also in the state of Florida. The tribe said Chief DiPetrio died from COVID-19 and that he's believed to have contracted the coronavirus while on duty attending the EMS Today Emergency Medical Services Conference in Tampa. The conference was held in early March at the Tampa Convention Center. He had been hospitalized since mid-March. Chief DiPetrio's brother, David, had been posting updates on Facebook for the past few weeks about the chief's condition. On April 30, he posted, 
My brother Donald DiPatrio has fought a long, hard, courageous fight for his earthly life. His fight is over. Donald is at peace with his savior, Jesus Christ, who welcomes him into God's loving arms. Chief DiPatrio's tenure as the tribe's fire chief lasted 11 years. A few months after being named chief, he participated in the grand opening ceremony for the Big Cypress Reservation's Jimmy Cypress Public Safety Complex on October 17, 2008. The facility is home to the reservation's fire police and other emergency personnel. Chief DiPatrio oversaw several firefighter EMS graduation ceremonies in tribal headquarters auditorium. In his addresses, he often stressed to new graduates the importance of family, both within the tribe and at home. Once you join the tribe, you're part of one big family. DiPatrio told graduates in May 2016, the tribal members count on us as a family and as co-workers to support them as much as we count on them to help us. Chief DiPatrio's firefighting career stretched back to the early 1970s. He worked for the city of Fort Lauderdale Fire Rescue Department from 1973 to 2001 and served as assistant fire chief. After retiring from Fort Lauderdale, he served as Davies Fire Chief and Emergency Management Director from 2001 to 2007. An outpouring of sympathy and respect for the Davie resident came from those he served and worked with throughout his career. The men and women of the Broward Sheriff's Office mourn the loss of Seminole Tribe, Florida Fire Chief Donald T. Petrillo, who sadly lost his battle with COVID-19. A true public safety icon in the South Florida fire community for nearly half a century, Chief DiPatrio served with pride, dignity, and dedication, Broward County Sheriff's Office posted on its Facebook page. He will be missed by all. Thank you for your years of service. Rest in peace, Chief, the Davy Fire Rescue Department posted on its Facebook page. Gone from our sight, but never from our hearts. Rest in peace, Chief DiPatrio, the town of Davy posted on Facebook. The FCABC is saddened to hear of the passing of Seminole Tribe Fire Department. Chief DiPetrio, Chief DiPetrio was a staple in South Florida fire service. We're a safer Broward because of his leadership. Rest in peace, Chief, the Fire Chiefs Association of Broward County posted. Miami TV stations showed a tribute from emergency personnel who gathered at the hospital and a procession with emergency vehicles led by Seminole Fire Rescue that accompanied the casket to a funeral home and plantation. Chief DiPatrio graduated from MacArthur High School in Hollywood in 1967. He earned a bachelor's degree in public administration from Barry University in Miami Shores. He also held an associate's degree in fire science from Broward College. Chief DiPatrio joined the U.S. Navy in 1971. As a yeoman second class, served on board the USS Wasp. He was honorably discharged into the U.S. Reserves in 1972. He survived by his mother, Joan, his son, Tyson of Davy, two brothers, David and John and Lindy Maracic, his girlfriend. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Very excited to speak with Steve Pine. Let me introduce him. Stephen Pine is an emeritus professor at Arizona State University. He's been at Arizona State since 1985. In 1986, he joined the charter faculty at ASU West, where he remained for 10 years. He transferred to the School of Life Sciences in 1999. He's published 35 books, most of them dealing with fire, but others on Antarctica, the Grand Canyon, the Voyager mission, and with his oldest daughter, an inquiry into the Pleistocene. His fire histories include surveys of America, Australia, Canada, Europe, including Russia and the Earth. The Ice, A Journey to Antarctica, was named by the New York Times to its 10 best books for 1987. Fire in America, A Cultural History of Wildland and Rural Fire, won the Forest History Society's Best Book Award. 
He's twice been awarded an NEH fellowship, twice been a fellow at the National Humanities Center, had a Fulbright fellowship to Sweden, and he also received a MacArthur fellowship in 1988. In 1995, he received the Robert Kirsch Award from the Los Angeles Times for body of work contribution to American letters. And um, everybody I know in the disaster history business has a favorite Steve Pine book. I'm just going to list a few of the ones um, that I think people should be familiar with. Fire, Brief History, revised uh, just last year to the Last Smoke uh, multi-volume series, which has been going on for several years now. Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America, which appeared in 2015. The book just last mentioned, The Last Lost World, Ice Ages, Human Origins, and the Invention of the Pleistocene with Lydia Pine. Voyager, Seeking New Worlds, Newer Worlds in the Third Great Age of Discovery, Tending Fire, Coping with America's Wildland Fires, and Fire, A Brief History. And I'll, I'll stop there because we could fill our whole, whole time with this, but I just want to welcome Steve Pine to COVID Calls. Well, thank you. Let me remind everybody, you can get your questions in in the YouTube live chat. Just put them in there, or you can um, put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. So Steve, I'll start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there. Well, I'm I'm at a tiny urban farm in Queen Creek, Arizona, which is in the southeast fringe of Phoenix. Um, pandemic uh, took off. Arizona went to the uh, top of the charts uh, once the, the first lockdown ended. Uh, the governor decided to follow the White House example, and things were th sort of thrown open, and with the predictable results, and now it is it is uh, calmed down considerably. So uh, most people and most businesses are behaving responsibly, and um, we're we're seeing the results of that. You have divided government there in Arizona, despite the fact that I think a lot of people think of Arizona as a pretty conservative place, but uh, it's a it's a swing state this year. And yeah. how has the pandemic played out at the local level in terms of politics? Well, the governor, after, after uh, things blew up here for a while, uh, the governor, uh, uh, Doug Ducey, uh, was pretty well ridiculed uh, and mocked uh, widely. And I think um, has kept a very low profile since then. I don't know how much the pandemic has change things. My my sense is that it's simply reinforcing people's preferences anyway. Um, and Arizona has been veering towards uh, a swing state. We have one senator uh, Democratic, and the polls suggest we may, we may have two. Uh, and what may even have changes in the House, we'll have to see. So Arizona is becoming a little more. It was, of course, the home state for Barry Goldwater and took that personally. Um, but now it's demographics and, and simply changes in American society. Uh, Arizona is, is changing a bit as well. You said you're in a, a tiny rural area <laughs> on the edge of Phoenix. Well, so did the city come to you or did you find one little pocket on the edge of the city? Well, we found a county island that was absorbed by the growing city of Queen Creek. And it was originally this area was mostly dairy farms, alfalfa fields and, and dairy and now it's being very quickly um, suburbanized. Uh, so it is, uh, we're a little atoll. Uh, and neighbors to one side have goats, and neighbor to the other has a, a few horses and a donkey. Um, 
other people around us seem to have uh, extra menageries of um, uh, UTVs and and uh, Winnebago's and whatever else, mostly mechanical stuff. But we're in a little a little patch. But a dozen years ago, my wife announced she would stay in Phoenix if she could raise sheep. I have no idea where that came from, but we we have sheep and chickens and citrus in the garden. We have about an acre and a half. And uh, so that that's really helped a lot in weathering the pandemic. I, I retired almost two years ago, so I haven't had to deal with commutes. I haven't had to deal with institutions and all of that, but I have been able to get outside a lot. There's always stuff to do. Unfortunately, it's been a record summer for heat and I'm, I'm kind of through with summer. <laughs> You should be. It's October, but well, <laughs> we're, it's still, I think it's supposed to, well, it's 102 right now, but it's supposed to start cooling off into the 90s uh, the next few days. So when it hits in the 80s, I'll think about putting on a sweater. <laughs> I grew up in Texas and I can't tell you how many times I was out wearing shorts playing basketball on Christmas Day. It just yeah. is how you how you grow up and what you get used to. Yeah. Um, but those extremes are getting more extreme and those nighttime cool temperatures are warmer than they ever were. And those are the kind of things that people are noticing. Yeah, I, I grew up in Phoenix and I, I do remember as a kid, um, I mean, it did cool off at night. And now urban heat island effect, um, as well as you know, climate change, is really the heat is just becoming relentless. So it doesn't seem to bother our sheep, though. I don't know why. But they, they seem to. That's counterintuitive. <laughs> well, they're Tunis. Uh, it's a breed. Originally, original stock came from North Africa. Okay. And it was part of uh, part of uh, America's loot after the uh, Barbary Pirates Wars. They they brought back some sheep. They interbred. Uh, Jefferson it was some of Jefferson's favorite sheep. He had them grazing on the White House lawn. They're the redheads, so that okay. may have been part of the appeal for him. Um, and they seem to do very well. They're a good all-purpose sheep. So um, anyway. let me, what's the fire hazard portfolio there at, at your property? I mean, it sounds like you live in the, in the wildland urban interface. No, we live in a, in a, a rural urban interface uh, where this little uh, patch of acre and a half sections surrounded by basically suburbs and strip malls. Um, so no, it's not, and Phoenix isn't really at risk the way lots of others are. We just don't have that kind of fuel. Uh, there's a problem with invasive grasses, particularly red brome and so forth. Uh, but you know, it, it, fires just blast through that like Kleenex. It, it doesn't. It doesn't really have any staying power. It's not really a threat to homes. You have to go into the mountains where you can get some uh, shrubs, some chaparral, uh, or into the forest. I see. So we're gonna talk about the pandemic, but I want to just um, get a sense, um, you know, get some of the themes going now in your career that uh, as we turn to talking about the pandemic and the piracine later, we'll have a background. Can you just say a little bit about your first interest in in fire, which I know was not necessarily an academic one, right? No, it was completely accidental. Uh, a few days after graduating from high school in Phoenix, I got a job at Grand Canyon National Park as a laborer. And I was signing my papers when the park got a call from one of the guys on the North Rim fire crew, uh, said he couldn't come. And they were anxious to fill the slot. So they looked around, there I was. And uh, I said, sure, I was 18. I didn't know anything. Uh, never been there. Had no idea what I was saying yes to, but 
that part of your life, you know, you're immortal. You don't really, you don't need to think through things. Uh, so I said yes, and it turned into a moment of, well, biographical wind shear. Uh, I mean, it was just a totally alien world for me. It's all sort of manual labor, all kinds of tools and machines I had never been around. Totally different environment. Uh, I had to learn whole new sets of skills, but, and, and I loved it. And I uh, kept coming back for 15 summers and all until I was finally too broken down. And I had a, you know, I was married. I had a kid. I've, <laughs> the time had come. So, <laughs> What's the most physically demanding part of doing that kind of work, the wildland fire work? Well, for me, I think it's, it's fatigue. Uh, what I looked for in a, a good fire person was somebody who had a lot of stamina and was resourceful or if you want to break it down, grit and wit. Uh, nothing ever goes according to the textbook. You're always having to improvise. You're always having to make some tool do something it wasn't designed for. You're always having, the scene is never the way you're trained it. And so you have to be able to imagine and think through. At the same time, um, you have to keep it up for a long time. It's not about strength. It's not about explosive uh, power. It, it's about being able to do stoop labor and manual labor for a long period of time. It's about pacing yourself um, and being able to keep keep it up. And so it, it, if you're good at it, it you, you, you become very persistent. Hmm. Uh, and I also learned, I learned a lot from that, I think more than I, I, I admit. Uh, I learned the value of uh, just a, a brute force approach instead of trying to be clever and spend days thinking about stuff. If you just do it, if you just mop it up, it's done and you're through. Uh, and about the power of just sort of persistent work, sort of tortoise and hare story, you know? You've got to be a tortoise on a fire crew. What you see are all these dramatic moments with flames and people silhouetted and all the rest of this stuff. And there are there are moments of, of great adrenaline rushes, but mostly it's just drudge labor. And if you're on a large fire, you're a very small cog in a very big machine. So where I was on the North Ram, I thought was ideal. Of course, we all think what we do is, is best. But we, we did a lot of initial attack. We, we, had, uh, we had to do everything. And we had to learn all the skills. We had to make quick decisions about whether we can hold it. If, if not, where do, we, where do we stop it? What kind of reinforcements do we need? Do we need uh, an air tanker to come in? Do we need some helicopter drops? How long is that going to take? Where does it come from? Who else can we call up? Uh, what kinds of people do we need? Where do we allocate? So there are a lot of things like that. So everybody's involved. I found that much more interesting. I've been on I've been on some really large fires, and boy, they were really they were wearing. Mm -hmm. We did so little. <laughs> we're yeah. out there, spending all day, you know, leaning on a shovel. Uh, whereas on the on the rim, we did smaller fires, but we had to do everything, and we were constantly busy. So, that I, I learned a lot from that. But they were two completely different lives. Uh, I mean, I think it's important that I did that before I went to college. Then I went away. I studied at the schools I went to. I, I never never took a course on fire. That was never taught. I mean, not many places did back then. Um, had nothing to do with fire, wrote my dissertation. It was a biography of an American geologist and explorer. Um, on the other hand, when I was on the rim, 
we were really isolated. I mean, we didn't have regular newspapers. Uh, we didn't get radio reception very often. Uh, we certainly we didn't have personal telephones. We certainly didn't have an internet. Um, once a month, the Coconino County Bookmobile would roll in, and we'd all knock off to check out some books. I learned about the lunar landing in 1969, about a week later, when I, I received my copy of Time magazine. I mean, we were completely out of it, and we didn't care. You know, our world was that world. And it was not until after I got my doctorate in 1976 that I was really faced with the problem. I had no academic jobs. What what do I do? And is maybe it's time to bring these two lives together. Maybe I should take the academic training I'd been given as a historian and think about fire in that way, which really nobody was doing at that time. There were a lot of people studying fire science or looking at fire scar analysis or charcoal and you know lake varves and so forth. But thinking about history as a large sort of cultural, uh, applying that kind of perspective to fire was something I don't think anybody had done. And there are almost, there are very, very few people even now doing it. I mean, if I had another 20 years, I could continue to do what I've been doing and still not exhaust the possibilities. So at the time, when I was on the, the North Rim, I was always told by people who are well-meaning, fire has no future. You know, if you want to get on with the park service or you want to get on with one of the agents, you've got to get out of fire. That's just something you do for a season or two, then you go on. Fire season's just a time in your life, go on. And I, I, I didn't believe that. I thought it was great. And the same time when I started, I said, I'm gonna write a book about fire. I mean, people looked at me, what are you gonna do with this? Nobody's gonna hire you to teach it. You know, you're making yourself irrelevant on this. Well, I decided I was going to do it regardless, and then the world changed. And so all this stuff that I decided to do, no clairvoyance on my part, turns out the world has been burning more and more ever since. And what I what I have to offer is has found a, a place that I could never have anticipated when I started. So I was thinking about that that timing. So you you came out with a with a history PhD in 1976 yeah and environmental history it was not yet a coherent field no um, no it, yeah what were the models you were looking i mean john mcphee was already doing some writing that's maybe but not of the, the scope that you've done but i mean sort of asking yeah. questions about environmental change from a social point of view what were the books you were reading that made you think uh, okay we could actually talk about society and the environment in this sort of co-creation, which I think is a signature yeah. of your work. Well, I had studied, my supervising professor was William Getzman, who had won a Pulitzer, uh, I think in 66, for uh, a history of exploration. And he wrote a kind of broad brush, 19th century history new, of exploration. In the new United. lands, new men, is that the? No, that came later, it was, was, later. Um, it was, um, Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on no, the spot. No, no. Exploration and empire. Yeah, yeah. All of the explorer and scientist in the American West. And then he, he expanded it to a more global scale with New Lands, New Men in, in 86. So that was 20 years later. Um, but he had he had looked at exploration, was willing to look at it in not exactly in anthropological terms, but in a sense, is a large cultural project, not just a series of adventure stories and and sketches and so forth. 
And I thought, well, if he can do that for exploration, why couldn't I do that for fire? I really didn't have a model. I was unemployed. It, I only work seasonally on the North Rim. I, my first uh, winter after getting my doctorate, I worked on the South Rim as a seasonal, um, doing odd jobs, whatever. Uh, and that's where I thought of writing this book, What Became Fire in America. Um, I really didn't have a model, but for the time I was writing that, I also had no colleagues. I had no one to talk to about it, except my new bride. Uh, we're still married. We managed to survive all of that. Uh, but I also had nobody to tell me I was wrong. I mean, I just, I really had to learn on myself to edit, to invent, to edit, to do all of these things. And that turned out to be a very useful skill. I wouldn't recommend the, I wouldn't recommend it as a calculated program. There are better ways to do this, sure. but uh, it certainly served me well. So then I, then I, it, I, I spent, well, I finally finished writing. I started in 77 with the project and then finished writing it in, in at the end of 1980. It came out in 82. Um, and then, then the question was, there's so much stuff out here that I couldn't deal with. Uh, should I just continue, you know, the sequels, start writing, filling in all these small stories that I sketched with larger ones, or should I go a more comparative approach? And I, I like the idea of comparative. So I, I went to Australia and Canada and Europe and what was then still the Soviet Union and all kinds of other places uh, and began thinking about fire and how how fire and culture interacted. So all the books are different because all the societies are different. And so if you think of fire as a cultural product, it's not the same story playing out. They're different stories because you know the United States and Canada handles fire very differently. In many ways we're, we're very similar, but uh, our political organization is different. Uh, and that, that has uh, significant ramifications for how we deal with fire. So, and then you come to other places. I mean, how does India deal with fire or Ghana, South Africa, uh, uh, Brazil? Uh, it's just endless. So anyway, so that's the way I did. And then, then uh, finally I, I had a chance about 10 years ago uh, to revisit the American scene. A lot had happened. Right. My book ended in the late seventies, uh, very active years. I had a chance to sort of start the narrative over, not just continue it, but start it over again, give it its own narrative arc and see what, try to explain why it looks the way it does now. Well, so, I want to talk about that um, okay. about that transition to, but but before we lose this, I'm just thinking, you know, um, but I went to the University of Texas also as an undergraduate and master's, okay. and Getzman was still there when I was there, um, and and Al Crosby had been there too, yeah. you know, and and it was a place that did foster what we might consider now, I think, as really sort of foundational texts in how we think about environment. As yeah. as culture and as politics, not not just as some, you know, history of the land, but also yeah. that interplay and how politics gets made. I, I was also thinking, and this may be a, a, com, a connection that is is not expected for some people, but you know, James Michener in Texas was very famous. I think it, I mean, sold a lot of books everywhere, 
And, you know, Michener was writing historical fiction, but I always was impressed by Michener at the beginning of all of his books. He did have this sort of natural history section that he always included. Um, And I don't know if you were reading Michener. I was reading Michener when I was sort of, you know, starting out. I read everything I could get my hands on, but I was always impressed with this idea that he, and whether or not you think the, the fiction was any good the ambition of writing these sort of yeah. stories of a place from the geology all the way through was, yeah. I thought, really impressive. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't reading Michener at the time, but I did minor in geology. And I wrote my first dissertation. First book was a biography of a geologist. So the idea of starting it with sort of earth history came natural. And then after I wrote Fire in America, I had a chance to go to Antarctica. I was out of the North Rim. And I spent a full season there and uh, wrote, wrote about ice. Uh, and that's, that's an inorganic world. I mean, that's the nature of it. In fact, the world is finally reduced to one mineral. I mean, you'd have to go three miles straight down at Dome C to find a rock. Uh, so uh, the idea of beginning large epics, planetary stories was very appealing to me. And I, I've tried to include that in, in various ways, as it's appropriate. Some places are more appropriate than others. So then you turn to Between Two Fires and and other works in which you're really sort of looking at American political development and through the lens of fire. I mean, there's so much happening in that that project, but I, I wonder if you could just tell us what were some of the, what were some of the changes that were happening in American government that you, that you think are well told through the story of fire? Because that's how I read a a lot of that. It sort of changes in the way American governance works. Sure. Well, um, I mean, the big, the the major push to begin fire control and make that a a state project, uh, part of a a kind of state-sponsored conservation, grew up during the progressive era. It's hard to imagine this happening, not in a time of political activism and reform, uh, at a time where Roosevelt is able to convene the governors, for heaven's sakes, to talk about conservation, you know, as part of before he ends his his term, um, that had to, that had to be, and it gave it a character, a particular character of a kind of technocratic approach, which turns out to be um, not very accurate description. These are deeply political projects, and I don't mean that in a dismissive sense. They ought to be political. You're talking about public safety. You're talking about public assets, public lands. They they should be political. But clearly, the New Deal uh, makes the Forest Service project possible because the CCC granted sort of bottomless amounts of labor that could be put to work, had to be put to work. Some of it... Uh, sort of mindlessly, but a lot of it, uh, we, we created an infrastructure for fire almost overnight, and then that influences policy. World War II influences it. We get all this war surplus equipment afterwards. Where does it go? It goes to the Forest Service and to the state cooperators uh, to wage war on fire. We're, we're in a kind of cold war on fire, and military funding is um, behind a lot of our fire behavior research. How will we defend ourselves from fires, large fires? How do we start large fires? Uh, all of this kind. Of, so it's it's always it's always there, and that's what makes it interesting. If it's just a story of people out with shovels and Pulaski's, I mean that at some point they all start looking the same. It's like pictures of big flames. I mean, after a while, how is this flame 
have any different meaning than that flame. They're all, they all just merge together or they become kind of juvenile sports stories. And I don't mean that facetiously. It's just that there, there's no other deeper engagement. That really changes, by the way, with Norman McLean's book, Young Men in Fire. That, that is a real watershed moment for a literature of fire. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get beyond it. We're, we're stuck on that. We need some other stories. We need a new McLean to come up at this point now. So, I mean, it's always been a part of that. Um, in more recent times, we spent basically, the story begins in 1910 with the Great Fires, the big blow up, traumatizes the Forest Service. Then it's a very young agency composed almost wholly of young men, able to be influenced in deep and traumatic ways that stay with the agency, that get sort of coded into its DNA. Uh, all the chief foresters up through 1939 are personally on the fire line. This is a kind of long march for this generation. And that, so that sort of starts the story. Okay, 1910, for the next 50 years, the Forest Service did what it was supposed to do. It created a national infrastructure to remove fire as much as possible from the landscape. By the 60s, however, it's clear that this is a mistake, that we're taking out good fires as well as bad fires, and we're creating conditions that are getting worse. All this is before climate change is even an issue. This is at a time when climatologists are telling us, you know, a new ice age is coming. It's inevitable. But simply by the way we treated fire and, and managed the land, we were creating problems. So that between the 60s and 70s, that earlier 50, 60-year project is reformed. And federal policy, beginning with the Park Service in 1968 and then with the Forest Service in 78, argues for a program of, of fire restoration. So we want to stop all the bad fires, but we want to put good fires back in. So this is not a new argument. Half of our history was trying to take fire out. The other half has been trying to put the necessary fires back in. And the interesting question becomes, why don't we have more to show for it? It's not a failure of policy. The policy has been in place for 40 to 50 years. And what happens, I think, is that uh, 1978 is sort of the high water mark for the project. That's when the Forest Service reforms. Interestingly enough, that's the last year, that's the year that where the discussion of climate change, which is starting to come up, flips. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same thing happens with fire. And suddenly by the 80s, um, you know, fire research is practically uh, extinguished. Uh, what, there were three labs, then there are two labs, th then it was possibility of one and maybe that would go. Um, the whole project uh, is about to go under, it's about to be privatized, essentially a different view of government and uh, uh, how how we should manage landscape and public lands comes into play and it stalls the, the sort of fire revolution uh, that was in place. And that really doesn't start up again. It didn't, it, it could roll it back, but it could stall it. And then that starts up again after the 94 season. 94 was our first billion dollar suppression year. We burned over a crew at South Canyon, Colorado, which got a lot of attention because people, all kinds of people who had no interest in fire had read Norman McLean's book, Young Men in Fire, about the Man Gulch Fire, and they saw the South Canyon Fire through the prism of that book. That changed the whole discourse uh, at all levels. So it starts over again. But really, the 70s and the early 80s were the last time uh, climate, fuels, um, 
uh, sort of urban sprawl, all these other components were in a position that we could have moved at scale and it didn't happen. We lost that opportunity. It was a lost decade and a little more. And by the time it starts up again in the mid to late 90s, everything is everything's against us. I mean, now climate is clearly becoming a bigger factor. We've got another few decades of fuels uh, right. mis misarranged. We, we've now got a whole recolonization of rural America by urbanites. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of a gentrification of the landscape, the rural landscape right. in a way. And so now, now everything's against it. It's very, very hard. Uh, in a way, we lost that opportunity. I don't know that we could have made it. A few places did, but generally no. So now we're in a position where, you know, we, we're trying lots of things. I mean, there are places where we really need to keep fires out of communities. How do we do that? There are a lot of places that really, really need fire back in because they're ecologically deteriorating, they're stockpiling fuels, they're, they're just becoming uninhabitable, unusable places. Um, how do we deal with that? Uh, how do we deal with all these other things? And now we've got a larger environmental crisis, the, the climate emergency, um, which is sort of acting as a performance enhancer and globalizer for all these other trends. And we've got to deal with that too. And, and you know, many of the observers, uh, not fully despairing, but I think legit legitimately angry are saying, you know, it's so, so dire and so strange that we have no narrative to connect this coming future with our past. And we have no analogs. We face a no analog future. And I, I think I approach it as a historian and I see, I think we've got a great narrative. It's a narrative of humanity and fire. It's our unique narrative. You know, Earth is well, the only fire planet we have. We're the only fire creature that can manipulate it. I don't want to get ahead of it there, but. Well, It's a great narrative. <laughs> Let's turn to that because I think we're, uh, first of all, let me just remind everybody, we're, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Steve Pine today about, about deep time and fire and uh, the pandemic, which we will get to. But I just want to, you have a piece up, you have, you've been very prolific, you're always <laughs> prolific, but you've been very prolific lately. Um, and you had a piece up on the conversation November 1st in which you, it's a little bit of a preview, I think, of a book you have coming out. And I just want to give a quote from it. You, you said, widen the aperture a little bit. So you're talking, sort of talking about climate change um, and what changes we're seeing in the world. You say, we can envision Earth entering a fire age comparable to the ice ages of the Pleistocene, complete with the Pyrrhic equivalent of ice sheets, pluvial lakes, paraglacial outwash plains, mass extinctions, and sea level change. It's an epoch in which fire is both prime mover and principal expression. Even climate history has become a subset of fire history. And so you tell us we're entering, or we're in, we are in um, the Pyrocene, a period of time in earth history in which fire is a dominant shaping, if not the dominant shaping force. This is this long narrative that you think yeah. we have at hand to help explain what we're seeing around us, am I right? 
That's right. And for me, the transition from burning what I think it was living landscapes, you know, living in dead material, biomass on the surface, uh, to burning fossil biomass, or what I've taken to calling lithic landscapes. Cool. Uh, this is a part of a, this is a seamless transition. It's not some kind of hydraulic jump. Um, and you can see how that begins changing our relationship to the world. And, and uh, climate is the, the most obvious expression of that, but you see it in fire. We, it had already created a crisis before. So that, that provides a narrative. It, it identifies us as the prime movers and uh, responsible agents. And I think with the idea of a fire equivalent of an ice age, that's a pretty apt analog for what, what's coming at us. Suddenly a lot of things seem to crystallize. Yeah, this kind of works out. And it shows the magnitude of it. And I think it puts, it puts the power source where it should be, that is fire, but fire in the hands of humans. So the, the thing about that that I find, there's a lot about that that's provocative, but one of, one of the things that's really important right now is that we unfortunately treat disasters oftentimes as separate yeah. In part because the way our expertise works, we have different agencies and different funding streams that we treat. You know, there, we have experts, you and I both have people we know who are experts in very esoteric aspects of, of uh, flood plane management or uh, atomic weapons, um, you know, modeling or whatever it may be. <laughs> but bringing those together in one frame to actually understand them as a compound problem I feel like that's right now with the co with the pandemic. Yeah, we're seeing the acute need for that kind of thinking, and I'm thinking right now about you know you got the climate, you got the pyrocene yeah. and climate change playing out at this very long scale, and then we have wildfires playing out at this acute scale, and then the pandemic is also unfolding at the same time. It is disorienting to people, I think. Yeah. How do you, how can you? How can you use this pyrocenic thinking to try to crystallize the, that compound a little bit in ways that people can get their mind around it? Well, as I say, I, I think much as climate is climate change is, is acting as a performance enhancer on stuff that's already out there. I mean, places that already have fire, like California, Australia, are seeing more savage versions of it, and fire is starting to come to places that haven't had it, or it's an enabler in places like the Amazon and Indonesian peatlands that shouldn't be having it at this scale that, that are. It's a way of bringing stuff together, but I also think it points to our interaction with nature and in some ways uh, broken biotas, if you will, and how we have been able to break it. And then we see the consequences, a lot of the knock-on effects. So, I mean, isn't aren't these sort of emergent diseases? Don't they typically come where people are disturbing and intervening in places unwisely, and then they can propagate out outward? And that's sort of what we've done with with many landscapes with fire. Uh, we've broken it, so we've made it worse. Um, and in fact, I think without trying to push it too much, there's an interesting analog between our, our mega fire uh, and a kind of emergent disease because fire, fire is an odd entity. It's a reaction. And in many ways, it's, it's not unlike a virus. We tend to think of it as a physical chemical reaction. 
um, that has nothing to do with life. It's something that impacts life. But life created oxygen. Life created the fuels and arranges the fuels. Fire depends on that. It propagates through biomass. That's what makes it different than, say, hurricanes or, or floods. Uh, so in many ways, it's, it's not alive, but it relies and propagates through the living world. So the way we perturb that world, interact with it in ways that then come back as disasters to us is, is not dissimilar. I mean, fire spreads as a contagion. I mean, you can model it as a contagion. And one of the questions I'm, I'm posing to the fire research community is that maybe it's time uh, to try some other models. Uh, maybe we've, we've done what we can with the physical model, which only invites physical responses. Maybe if we, if we thought of this as a kind of uh, equivalent to a, a landscape equivalent to a virus, how would we respond to it? Would we just be dumping retardant on it? and uh, scraping away all the living biomass from places? Or would we be thinking, hey, how do we work with these landscapes? How do we think ecologically to make these more stable? Uh, how can we rebuild some integrity so that there are checks and balances in it? Uh, I mean, I think it would suggest a different suite of approaches and a different mindset. Maybe we think of this as a public health problem, not just as a physical disaster problem. Yeah, so if you, I mean, one of, I mean, that is so provocative and and partially because the thing we're learning right now, I mean, public health researchers have known this a long time, but uh, COVID-19 does not affect a population. It affects people. It models the inequalities that already exist and the vulnerabilities that already exist in society. So thinking analogically to fire, like the virus, then we should be, if I'm just following your chain of reasoning here, thinking about fire protection in the same way we might think about the way COVID-19 has propagated through American society. We'd be looking for inequalities and, and weak points rather than a national strategy or even a California strategy yeah. or whatever that may be. That's right. That's right. It, because fire, fire acts as a catalyst. It integrates everything. I mean, I, my image of fire is as a driverless car. People always want, what's driving this? What's driving the megafires? Well, everything. It's just barreling down the road, integrating everything around it. And at different times and places, different things loom larger. But there are all these things out there. And those are all points of intervention possible. In other words, there's not one big thing we have to fix before we can deal with it. But that also means that there are a lot of other things that maybe we need to fix anyway that would also go towards fixing fire. Why do we have power lines starting fires? or we have to turn the power line off. This is absurd. I mean, that's a technical fix. Why do we have communities burning? We solved the problem of burning cities a long time ago. Right. Why did, well, we didn't define it as a city. So we didn't need to, you know, keep up the vaccinations and the hygienes and the public health model. We just, hey, we don't, this doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I look at some of the mega fires. We had great mega fires in American history during the settlement era. This is like polio coming back, or it's like a massive measles outbreak, or a new epidemic spilling out, like, like COVID. Uh, in other words, that gives us a different way of thinking about it, which might suggest there are other ways of responding. And in some ways, all, all analogies fail. But just for example, the, the community, the house protection, um, most houses are taken out by embers. I mean, it's not a this tidal wave right. of flame washing over communities. Well, uh, hardening the houses against embers is like wearing a mask. 
against aerosols, what we call defensible space. Well, that looks a lot like social distancing. It's a social problem. If you if you take measures, but your neighbors don't, you're still at risk. Putting out good fires uh, to to protect against bad fires that looks a lot like herd immunity. So you know maybe maybe we don't have a vaccine for it, but maybe it's like flu shots. You know, it's not perfect. They're all it's always changing, uh, but it's better now. Those are a different set of models than just saying we need more fire engines and air tankers. Anyway, that that's part of what I I'm I'm trying to trying to suggest some other ways to think about fire because the way we're doing it as a war is failing. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that um, the dominant disaster paradigm of any one time is how we view all the other hazards. Yeah. So as you were talking earlier, you know, if we're fighting the Cold War, and the forest looks like another front in the war, we fight, and we they literally doing mass fire testing in the forest to prepare for the war. I mean, the overlap is pretty extraordinary and strange. But you're suggesting that there's maybe an opening here to view the fire problem through the lens of the pandemic. I That's hadn't right. thought about that. Yeah, because it also suggests simply firefighting in the model we've we've got and the fire science we have to support that isn't solving the problem of managing fire on landscapes. And we need another way of thinking about it. And if we think about fire differently, what what other kinds of suggestions does it come up? It's a different way of of, of it's a way of going at the the issue sideways instead of just bashing our head with bigger rams, you know, against against the wall. We we've reached a point where this doesn't work. I mean, for a hundred years in California, they they have an implacable nature which is prone to fires and prone to explosive fires, and they've got a society which is determined to live where and how it chooses, and they've relied on fire agencies to stand between those two as a buffer, and we've reached the point that that doesn't work anymore. I mean, even the fire agents say we can't we can't protect you under extreme conditions. Well, we need to think through the problem differently, and and why not? Why not? I've been suggesting some kind of contagion model, some kind of public health model, emergent disease problem. It actually works out fairly well, and it might propose other kinds of ways to go at this. people you're listening to COVID calls and talking to to Steve Pine today about fire and the pandemic. I need to say, let's talk a little about this, a little bit more about this convergence point where public health and the fire meet, because I think oftentimes you mentioned earlier the fire problem of cities. People still die of urban fires, absolutely, far too many. But the idea of cities burning down stopped in America in the 1920s. And as you were talking about your experiences in wildland fire coming up. We'd thought about about wildfires as remote things. That can't be true anymore because of smoke, um, because of the wildland urban interface. I think anybody living out west now has some experience with with fire, even if it's the color of the sky, whatever it may be. They experience it sensorially now. 
I had um, Luke Montrose on. I don't know if you've met Luke. He's a no. professor at Bo Boise State, and he's doing some really great research there. And he was talking about the public health realities for the crews, mm -hmm. which they already have. I guess there's already upper respiratory problems that they all fight. Maybe you know this firsthand. I don't know. but um, And then you layer COVID-19 into that. And not only is that their reality, but it, then it becomes a sort of a preview of what maybe average people living in fire prone spaces are going to start seeing with smoke and the problems that come with repetitive smoke problems, the yeah. 2.5 PM problem and the virus. That's right. And uh, smoke is becoming a real trigger point uh, because it extends the range of the fire far beyond the actual flaming front. Um, and we lived in a post-war period for about 40 years, maybe 35, 40 years. You know, fires were relatively benign. Smoke was more or less gone. Clean Air Act was effective in removing a lot of... Now it's come back. And again, it's a case, hey, we solved this. What happened? It's Again, it's like watching something that had gone away return. Uh, I think we're, we've got... But we've got to recognize that there's going to be a lot more fire out there. We hope not explosive fire and a lot more smoke. And I think we're just going to have smoke as a seasonal nuisance in the same way you have seasonal allergies. And people may wind up wearing masks during part of the season. Just that's the reality. We're not going to make the smoke go away. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have it under really extreme conditions where people are going to end up large numbers in a hospital with massive risk respiratory problems instead of nuisance. And people may people may just leave for the season the way they, they leave snowy areas now. I mean, I, I can I can imagine all of these kinds of things coming up. Um, the crew situation is interesting. There were a lot of efforts before the season started to try, how can we protect crews, you know, prevent large massive fires with large, huge numbers of fire crews, which is what we've got now, as it turns out. Uh, and I was I was struck by the oddity that, you know, in 1910, uh, the Forest Service rallied like 9,500 firefighters they hired to send out in the Northern Rockies, plus most of the standing military in the Pacific Northwest, which was not large, but they were all out there. And that's comparable to numbers we're sending out today. And I'm wondering, doesn't that seem odd? All of our science, all of our technology, all of our communication, all of our advances, and we're sending out the same numbers of people? Are the fires that much worse? Is the condition worse? Or is there something about the way we think of fire and have a culture of fire that, that depends on large numbers of people? And I was thinking, wow, COVID would be a great opportunity to experiment. Let's, why don't we start substituting a lot of equipment? Why don't we start experimenting with other ways to do the job that don't require large numbers of masked Mask people guy. in camps? Mm -hmm. uh, there was a big program actually after the Korean War to transfer, to systematically transfer military surplus equipment to, uh, to fire fighting. And I was thinking, wow, why don't we take COVID as an opportunity to experiment with modern technologies and think about all the ways we could substitute for people. And maybe if we did that, that would give us some different insights into managing these fires. 
why do we have to have all these crews, which then require all these camps, all the logistical stuff that goes on? I mean, we, we now have what critics call uh, a fire industrial complex that has grown up, particularly with privatization now uh, with, with their own lobbyists. Is this really necessary? Or do we want that kind of concentration right around communities? But otherwise, why can't we use all this nifty technology instead of just adding it to 10,000 plus firefighters? So that's sort of the evolution of technology and workforce and fire is, is, is an oddity. But and I think this would have been my sense what the, hey, this is, we're presented with an opportunity. Let's yeah. seize it. But you, so you've well documented in your writing, not just in the United States, but in other countries, when there are policy tipping points, and sometimes they're driven by events, sometimes they're not. I don't think it's easy yeah. to characterize one way or the other, but I mean, clearly right now, we have a convergence of so many, I mean, disasters never leave the, head, leave the headlines in the United yeah. States now. The kind of idea you just put forward, I mean, we are, the table is set for policy innovation for a 21st century fire strategy for America. Maybe you're aware of it. I'm not seeing it. No, I'm not either. Uh, and uh, I've I've been asked. Actually, I've done a couple of op eds on it, and people have asked. Uh, you know, surely this is going to be. This will be like 1910. And I think uh, the director of Cal Fire actually made that analogy a, a couple of days ago. Um, and I say, well, 1910, a lot of things converged to make it possible. So yeah, the fires are, are large. They're, they're getting a lot of press in California and the West Coast. Uh, they're getting national press, but you know, we've also got a pandemic. We've got an economic crisis. Uh, we've got an election coming up, which both parties regard as existential. Uh, we've got another hurricane heading to the, the Gulf Coast. Um, why do we think that fire is going to control the narrative here? And if it doesn't, what is the narrative? Uh, what face do we put on it? Uh, how do we understand it? Uh, and my sense is that I, I th much as much as I'm committed to a fire-centric uh, view of the world, uh, that's not going to take hold generally. Um, but maybe it doesn't have to, because again, fire interacts with all these other things. So, okay, we need to fix our electric grid anyway. Let's put fire, fire maybe give us a catalyst to help do that. We need to reconsider how we put our communities and what, how we design them and zone them, uh, particularly in the West. But now we see with climate change and land use, the fires are going to where the houses are. They're going to the East. I mean, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe there's a chance to put fire in with a lot of other things. So we don't have a trillion dollar fire dedicated program. We have fire interacting with all kinds of other things many of which we need to do anyway. And this would be this could be the catalyst for that. I don't think we need a new policy. The policy has been effective for 40 plus years. It's the ability to actually implement it, um, create the space, create the right mix of things. And, you know, we just don't, so we talk about, let's put good fire back in, prescribed burning as part of the solution. Well, there are all, all kinds of fires, not just prescribed fires that can get back in. A lot of Western fire officers are working with wildfires now and, you know, working, pushing and pulling them, sort of kind of loose hurting them to get some fraction of fire in the land before conditions get even worse. There are, there are lots of opportunities for that. 
Um, oh, I'm sorry, I've lost. <laughs> no, that's that's. By trying to thought it. Uh, um, yeah. Well, but just to follow up on that, because we were talking about you know the potential there for for policy change, yeah. and I think you very well said. I mean, that the policies that are needed are probably in place, but there's other factors at play here. There's a couple of I'm interested in and want to get your take on quickly. One is, at least in urban fire for a long time, whatever you may think about the insurance industry, and most people don't think very highly of it, but it has been a force in the management of the American sort of hazard profile, usually in urban space. But yeah, I'm curious about about this, particularly when we think about reinsurance and, and the, the, the looming risk on the cost of fires that enter cities now, that come from the WUI and into the urban space and can be billion dollar events. That's no longer theoretical. No, nor, nor is uh, having uh, California's major utility declare bankruptcy right. and have some of its executives uh, charged with, with criminal under criminal statutes. Um, I mean, this is starting to look like real money and, and real economic payoff. But as I read the insurance story in cities, um, insurance wasn't enough to change it by itself no. because people would just buy another insurance. And in many ways, the insurance companies were happy to have parts of the cities burned because that would encourage people to buy insurance. What they didn't want was a mass fire that right. wiped everybody out and then people get nothing. So what it required was a political decision that we're not going to allow these fires anymore. And that set a certain, that, that sort of set a, uh, conditions under which insurance could operate. People were required to have insurance for various, and then the market could operate within those terms, but it wasn't enough to change. It wasn't enough to produce a political reform on its own. And I see the same thing happening in wildlands. Um, we have a cabin in the mountains. I spent 20 years getting ready for the fire. I, I, I was sure would come. It did. It was a 538,000 acre fire. The wall of fire went right around us. It took a, a landscaping, took a lot bigger hit than I imagined. The cabin came through fine. Um, and after that, having done everything proper and having protected the house, our insurance rates went up 50% the next year. Well, I just went to another national insurer and it turns out our rates were less than we were before. So it's hard to imagine under those, under that kind of market condition that the market is going to do it. Where the market really matters is where you have a lot of concentrated high value houses that if they're taken out. And what what's starting to happen there is they're hiring private protection in the same way they would have private security. So gated communities are taking themselves out of the public realm. So I don't see a solution other than a political one that makes it fair in a sense for the insurance companies to play. These are the terms. People are going to have fire insurance. These are the general parameters. Okay, you guys, let's let the market go to work here. But other than that, I don't see it happening, frankly. Well, do you think then that Western governors or Western mayors may as we go into the sort of next generation of the unfolding of climate change and the piracine. I mean, there's a tradition of American policy entrepreneurship at the point of the, at the yeah. point of the disaster possible. Are we looking at Gavin Newsom, the, the, the future fire policy in America or John Hickenlooper or whoever you want to point to? 
I don't know, but it's got to be at at least at the state level. Otherwise, counties will compete among each other. Who who doesn't require people? People can build wherever they want. Yeah, we want more development because it brings in more tax revenue. It, sure. it builds up stuff. You're not going to get county commissioners uh, to take themselves out of the market to sort of unilaterally disarm <laughs> their economic contest. Uh, they have they they have to be free to make these policy innovations. That has to come at a higher level, probably the state level. Um, California is such a huge presence in the country. I mean, in demographics and economics, in fire, that if California can begin moving in a significant way, that will affect the rest. It will certainly affect the rest of the Western U.S. and may affect the country. So I really think we all have a lot on California pulling through this. In, in a good way. I'm kind of impressed with Newsom's presence on, on the fires. Um, he doesn't seem to be exploiting it for political gain in the usual sense. Um, we'll, see what, we'll see what happens afterwards. I mean, California's got a lot of things happening right now, and we'll have to see how the national election goes and what other kinds of assistance uh, can be gotten. These are not insoluble problems. I mean, humans created all of these issues, and humans can begin undoing what we've done. I mean, Florida 30 years ago passed a changed liability law to give, to make prescribed fire a default setting. Not, not a choice that where you take on extra risk. This is assumed what you will do. You have to go through some training right. or some other constraints on it. And then you're pretty well protected, you know? Uh, so the argument that, well, liability is too big an issue. Insurance is too big of a problem. Those those are all the create those are all creations of people. That's not embedded in nature. We can change those if we choose. We're almost up on time. I just want to get one little question in, one final question, because I know you have another project coming out next year. And it's been obviously in the pandemic we're focused on on the human cost. But I've also talked with at the same time a lot of epidemiologists and doctors and researchers who are pointing out we can't lose stock of the fact that we knew nothing. This is literally a novel coronavirus, yeah. and they have learned enough to be moving towards a vaccine, we believe, some point in the foreseeable future, probably not before Election Day. But the pace of scientific learning is extraordinary. And I, I've, I, asked, I put that on the table because you have a longstanding interest in discovery now, and, and discovery has lots of different valences and registers. Sometimes it's about science, it's about the micro level, sometimes it's about territory and the macro level or extraterrestrial. How, so my question to you is this, how do you sustain, why do you sustain your interest in, in that aspect of the human experience? Well, I mean, that's what I went to graduate school to study. Uh, I had no idea that I would end up primarily as a fire historian. Um, so I've always come back to it. And in some ways I, I lived this double life, this sort of, I thought of myself as a two cycle engine. And in some ways I've managed to maintain that. I, I get about three strokes of fire for every stroke of exploration in a sense, but I've never given up on it. And actually my non-fire books have always done better critically and commercially than my fire books. The fire community is not particularly a book culture. I mean, I, I love that life, but they're basically people who think with their hands, they wanna do stuff. 
they're not they're not writing. So I've always come back to it. Um, the Ice may, is probably my best book. How the Canyon Became Grand: A Study in How Did We Come to Value This Very Strange Landscape? Uh, it's probably over time has sold more copies than anything else. My Voyager book, um, you know, I thought it was a way of bringing together a lot of what I understood of exploration. But then I finally decided that just as a, a book I'm work, I've written on the Pyrocene will summarize, distill in a fairly compact way, all that I've learned about fire, I should write a book about exploration. So The Great Ages of Discovery uh, is coming out, I think, in January or February from the University of Arizona Press. And uh, I don't know that I, I have more on exploration to do. It might be a case of biographies or, or sort of kind of micro histories, or it might be a particular expedition or something. But uh, in terms of conceptual framing, I, I think I, these two books will summarize what I've done over my, my academic life. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch us uh, every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll be um, culminating this week with a, a special session in honor of the week of mourning and the work of marked by COVID and Kristen Urquiza. And um, we'll have a session just dedicated to hearing obituaries and life stories and talking about what those have meant. So please join us tomorrow at 5 p.m. And I really want to thank Steve Pine. Um, over the years, whenever I could catch you at an environmental history meeting, I think I, I was the guy who got you in the corner and wouldn't let you go eat your lunch. And, and uh, I really appreciate your generosity of time today. I always learn a lot from you. Oh, well, thank you. It's a, it, it forced me to, to try to organize some of my thoughts about the analogy a fire is a contagion, virus, what we can learn. You know, we think, well, we'll, we'll adopt a fire model for COVID. Well, maybe we pick up the other end of that stick. Maybe it's a pandemic model is how we need to think about fire. So thanks so, again. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, everybody. Stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.